it tells us that his humble beginnings project forward to a humble earthly ministry as a lowly, loving, caring shepherd. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of Christ, the Center of All History, an 11-part series from Pastor Paul Twiss. The Apostle Matthew, in chapter two of his gospel, builds our suspense in the first 12 verses by juxtaposing King Herod with the wise men from the East. The setting was lowly Bethlehem, Jesus's birthplace. In fact, this was the birthplace of our Savior, and God-fearing shepherds and wise men worshipped this child king there, but did not plan to make it a place of renown. King Herod, however, could have made it a place of eternal infamy as he justified killing many children to eliminate this child and protect his throne. In God's sovereignty, the wise men followed the one true God and slipped away without informing Herod of the child's location. This humble child would live to die as God's spotless lamb on a bloody cross some 30 years later. Here's part one of Christ, the center of all history. Matthew 2, 1 through 12, I'll read the text and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together in his word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So reads the word of the living God. Let's pray. Father, as we have sung this morning of Christ as our shepherd, as we have thought about your sovereign hand working throughout history to bring about your plan of salvation, 
And as we have read from Isaiah the prophet and seen what will one day come to pass when Christ returns. So now we give our attention to this text in Matthew's Gospel that speaks of all of these truths. And as we do so, we ask as ever that you would soften our hearts, Father, to receive your word. Implant it in us so as to have your way with us. Instruct us in the truth for the praise of your glory in Christ's name. Amen. As we have been working through Matthew's Gospel, we have seen a number of proofs that Matthew gives in order to justify the outrageous claim that he makes in verse 1 of his Gospel. Perhaps not outrageous as it comes to us, but to his original audience as Matthew begins this narrative claiming that Jesus is the long-awaited-for Messiah That claim needs some validation. That is world-changing to anyone that would read this book. And so Matthew then, for two chapters, lays out one proof after another. That is the function of Matthew's prologue. When we get to chapter 3, we drop into the life of Jesus, his public ministry. The first two chapters are all prologue. And it's a series of proofs that Matthew gives so as to justify the claim that he begins with in verse 1 of his gospel. As we've been working through these proofs, a number of things should stick out to you. One is that Matthew is particularly prone to draw on the Old Testament. A number of times he'll go back to Old Testament texts, and we should expect him to do that. Matthew was writing originally to a primarily Jewish audience, Jews who had not yet embraced the reality of Jesus as the Messiah, or Jews that had, and he was seeking to encourage them. So he was going to their scriptures. He's going to the Old Testament, their scriptures, and the way in which he gives proof that Jesus is the Christ is to show the notion of prophecies being fulfilled. As Matthew does that, I am aware that quite possibly for most here this morning, if not all, the question of Jesus as the Messiah is not one that plagues us, not one that troubles us. It's not a a barrier that we need to overcome in our thinking. We accept that Jesus is the Christ. For many of us, we were introduced to him in that very manner. We've never known Jesus to be anything other than the Christ. And so the question that Matthew is answering, the the proof that he is giving, is not primarily one that is difficult for us to embrace. So then that might lead us to say, so what use does Matthew 1 and 2 have in our lives? I'm persuaded of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, so, so how do these chapters function for me? And I hope that you realize that in these two chapters, as Matthew lays out one historical piece of evidence after another, he is doing so much more than simply proving that Jesus is the Christ. I hope that in our last few weeks in Matthew, that fact has started to become evident. Consider the fact that if, if Jesus was only being set forth as a Messiah here in a historical manner, historical proof is being given and that were it, 
Jesus' narrative would be a far shorter narrative than it actually is. If Jesus wanted to prove to us that Jesus is the Messiah by virtue of the place of his birth, which is this morning's text, and that was all he was hoping to do, he would probably have said in one verse, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, as Micah had said he would be. That's the proof. That's it. Given now. That's the box checked. The job is done. And yet what Matthew actually does is give us 12 verses, a relatively long narrative, informing us of the geographical location of his birth. And in that long narrative, he draws attention to certain details. He puts points of emphasis on certain features of the historical narrative. Matthew is doing things far beyond simply giving us a proof text. What Matthew is doing all the way through his prologue, and we'll see all the way through his gospel, is that he is forging a theology concerning this man, Christ Jesus. Matthew is forging a theology that he intends to impress upon us, that we would take in and receive in our hearts and would transform the way we live our lives. Matthew is giving us, text by text, proof by proof, something of the glory of Jesus Christ. And as you look at every text in turn, understand that we are to be persuaded even more of his identity as the long-awaited-for king, but so also are we to receive a rich Christology, a rich theology concerning this man that is intended to shape the way in which we live. Arguably, in the ground that we've covered so far, Nowhere does Matthew do this more so than in our text this morning. There has been a lot going on in chapters 1 and chapter 2 so far. But it's in the first 12 verses, our text this morning of chapter 2, perhaps more than anywhere else, that we find the depths and the riches of the Christology of this man coming forth to us. The reason I say that is because this text is actually a constellation of Old Testament theology, a constellation of Old Testament texts that Matthew is drawing on. You can see one of them, certainly, and that would be the quote from Micah. That one is very evident to us in your Bible, is perhaps offset, and there's attention drawn to it by virtue of the, the words it was written by the prophet. That's a signal that we're now going back to an Old Testament text. That one is evident but there are at least two more embedded in the narrative which are less clearly signaled to us but are just as important as it relates to our understanding of Jesus. These first 12 verses of chapter 2 form a constellation of at least three Old Testament texts that bleed through into the birth narrative and speak of the manifold glory of Christ. Matthew is showing us here something of God's sovereign plan to make known the manifold glory of Christ in his birth. So our job this morning is to work through this constellation. We are, in a sense, stargazing. We're taking in the light of these 12 verses so as to better understand our Savior. 
so as to better worship him and live lives that honor him. How do we get into this constellation? How do we break into it and start to view it? The answer is that Matthew has greatly helped us in the very first verse. In the first verse of chapter 2, Matthew lines up what will be the salient features of this narrative. He says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So there we have it. Those are the three features, the points of emphasis in this narrative to which we need to give our attention the fact of his being born in Bethlehem, the fact that it was in the days of Herod, and the fact of the wise men, each of them lead us to an Old Testament text which informs our understanding of Christ and our worship of him. We'll take them in order and begin with the fact that Christ was born in Bethlehem. These wise men come from the east. They follow the star and they meet with Herod. Herod is unnerved, he's troubled by the birth of this supposed king, and so he inquires of his chief priests and his scribes, where is the Christ to be born? Evidently, Herod is not a man familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, because they all reply, of course, he's to be born in Bethlehem. Of course he's to be born in Bethlehem. That's exactly what the Old Testament teaches us. If indeed he's the Messiah, that will be his place of birth. And they quote from Micah chapter 5, Verse 1, O you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. That's a quotation taken from the prophet Micah. Now you remember back to last week when we dealt with another Old Testament text, one of the things that I said to you is whenever you see the Old Testament being quoted by New Testament authors, do not think of it merely in terms of a box-checking exercise. It is fulfilling a criteria concerning the birth of the Messiah. It is. But the fact that Matthew sees fit to quote the text, to draw from the text, tells us he wants us to understand more about simply the fulfillment exercise. Every single time you see the Old Testament being quoted, the author is drawing on that text. This original text has a theology attendant to it. And Matthew is drawing on it. He's pulling on that theology in Micah and pushing it into his narrative. He wants us to read his narrative in light of the antecedent narrative. So then what is Micah all about? Micah is one of our minor prophets. His name means who is like the Lord. You didn't come to church today thinking you'd get a Hebrew lesson. You just got one. Micah, the name, means who is like the Lord. It is often the case that the name of the prophet speaks something of his message. Isaiah, the Lord saves. That tells us something about his message. Ezekiel, God is strong. That tells us something about his message. Micah, who is like the Lord. The book of Micah is all about the perfection of God and in turn the perfection of his plan. What Micah does is set forth God's plan to his people and he proclaims this plan is without error. This plan is perfect. This plan is without blemish. 
Because it comes from a perfect God. Who is like the Lord, says Micah. Micah does this in two stages. Often the prophets divide their books into two halves, a book of judgment, many oracles of judgment, and then a second half, oracles of future salvation for the nation of Israel. Micah follows that pattern. And so Micah says to his people in the first half, there is judgment coming. He's looking ahead to the exile and he says, this is on the horizon for you and it is perfect. This is God's perfect plan for you. No mistakes when exile comes. And then he looks even further into the future and he says, and there is one day a glorious salvation awaiting for you. And it is perfect. In all of your waiting for these promises to be fulfilled, there is no mistake. As you yearn for your future salvation, God has not forgotten about you. His plan and his timing, the execution of that plan is perfect. Who is like the Lord? That is the message of Micah. A linchpin text within Micah is the one quoted in Matthew 2 today. A linchpin text upon which it all hinges is this king who will be born in Bethlehem. And there again we see the incredible perfection of God. No one else would have planned it like this, but God does. He displays his glory by ordaining that the Messiah would be born in a town like Bethlehem. Meaning, Bethlehem had no reputation. No one ever expected anything good to come out of Bethlehem. And that is is exactly the way the Lord works. It is still like that today. In the Lord's wisdom, Bethlehem remains a town that really has not much to boast about it. If you go to Israel, you'll be impressed visually by Jerusalem. You'll be impressed by the old city and the Temple Mount. You'll be impressed by many things in Israel, not Bethlehem. It is a town of little repute. There's lots of tourists that go there. It's full of tourists because it's the birthplace of Christ. There's buses and buses and buses going into Bethlehem every day. But it doesn't have anything to boast about apart from the birth of the Messiah. And that was God's perfect plan. Now at Christmas time, we visit this text. This is one of our Christmas texts. We sing about the town of Bethlehem. But I wonder if you've ever considered why this humble beginning of the Messiah is perfect for you. We affirm it historically as a fact. We sing songs about it. But you need to understand the context from which it comes, which is a book wherein the perfection of God's plan is being made known. So why was it perfect that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? And what we'll often say at Christmas, rightly, what we'll often say is his humble beginnings in a town such as Bethlehem portend, look forward to, hint at his humble earthly ministry. That's absolutely correct. We champion that. Look how he began in a manger as an infant in Bethlehem. And oh, how that speaks of his humble earthly life. Yes. But why was that perfect? Matthew answers that question by adding 
what I call a crystallizing text to the quotation of Micah. The very last line of the quotation there, who will shepherd my people Israel, is actually taken from another Old Testament text. If you have cross-references in your Bible, you might see Micah 5.1 listed. You might also see 2 Samuel 5.2. Micah gives us the reality of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Matthew takes the liberty, and he is at liberty to do this. He takes another scripture and adds it on the end to crystallize the theology of the birth in Bethlehem. He takes from 2 Samuel 5, wherein David is crowned as king over all of Israel, and the people flock to him, and the people proclaim him to be their shepherd. God says, you will shepherd my people Israel, and the Israelites say, yes, you are our shepherd. And that crystallizes for us why Christ's birth in Bethlehem was perfect. Because it portends not merely a humble earthly ministry. It speaks of the fact that this king is coming as a shepherd. It tells us that his humble beginnings project forward to a humble earthly ministry as a lowly, loving, caring shepherd. And that is exactly what each and every one of us needs. Consider the fact, in your sin, you were dead, spiritually lifeless. You had nothing going on spiritually. If God had sent a tyrannical king, heavy-handed, who was going to boss people around and only thought about himself, you would still be lifeless today. Dead in your sins. You had nothing in you that considered seeking salvation. There was nothing that you contributed to your salvation. So the last thing you needed was a tyrannical king who also would care nothing about your salvation. What you needed in your dead and lifeless state as a sinner and an enemy of God, what you needed was a shepherd who would seek and save the lost. The only way in which you might be given life, spiritual life, eternal life, is if a shepherd came to seek you out. And if you are in Christ this morning, understand that whatever your testimony may sound like, theologically, Christ the good shepherd came and found you. He found you when you were not looking for him. Consider the fact that Christ the humble shepherd came to one who had declared himself to be an enemy of God. Through your actions and your thoughts and the meditations of your heart, you had declared yourself to be an enemy of God. And a tyrannical king who was full of pride would never have approached such an enemy and said, I'm going to bring you in though you don't deserve it. That's not the way of a despot. The lowly earthly shepherd says, I know who you are and I am coming to save you. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Matthew wrote his gospel for the sake of his people, the Jews, proving that Christ Jesus was their awaited Messiah. He begins by giving his readers the, quote, genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, end quote. And then reading chapter two, one sees a convincing way for Matthew to show this child as God's anointed. 
We don't know much about this apostle's life after Christ ascended, but his gospel changed history in leading untold millions to this servant savior as their Messiah. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you'd like to learn more about Christ, come to TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts, and there you'll find the archive of Christ-centered, solid Bible teaching. Join us tomorrow as we continue in our new series with part two of Christ, the Center of All History, from Pastor Paul Twist. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.